Good morning, everybody. So I heard a story about um, a museum that was having trouble with people, patrons to the museum, touching the items around the museum. Very expensive, old, you know, items, old furniture, pieces of art, things like that. And it, you know that you're not supposed to touch those things, right? That's like as you, if you touch a piece of old furniture with very old varnish on it, eventually, after a little while, the oils from your hand will accumulate on all, from all the different people touching it, will, will degrade the material, right? It's, it's, you're not supposed to touch those items. And so the museum workers uh, were trying to solve this problem, and they, of course, put up a sign that said, do not touch. Now, do you think the touching stopped at that point? No. In, in fact, probably the touching increased at that point. People were like, well, does this bestow magical powers? I don't know. I'm going to touch this to find out. Um, and it continued, and then eventually the museum came up with a solution to this problem, and their solution was this. They put up a new sign that said, please wash hands after touching. <laughs> and then, then apparently the touching stopped. Um, now, you, you know this dynamic. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We had pictures of signs that were up about don't you know, climb on this, and it showed a picture of someone climbing on the thing they were not supposed to be doing. There's this thing within us that pushes back to those kind of boundaries that we see around us, right? There's this just kind of natural reaction that happens where when we're told not to do something, it's like there, there's kind of a drive that we didn't even know we had to do the thing that we weren't supposed to do. Now, we're in this study of the book of Romans, and we're in Romans chapter 7 today. You can open your Bibles or devices there to get there. It'll also be on the screen behind me. But in our study in the book of Romans... We're talking about, we're tracing Paul's argument through the book of Romans. Now we're to chapter 7. And Paul has been bringing up this idea of the law and the way that the law interacts with our sin nature. And that's where today's message is going to be going. Um, the law pushes buttons for us in some ways before we come to Christ, but also after we come to Christ. And when we understand this idea of the law, this is, this is an important concept for us to wrestle with today, together today because Paul uses the word law 23 times in the book of Romans, or Romans chapter 7, this chapter alone. So he's going to say the word law a lot. And, and I want us to be kind of fresh in our minds, or if you're new to this idea, I want to introduce this idea to you. But when the Bible talks about the law, when the apostle uh, Peter or Paul talks about the law, a little bit of a ringing I'm hearing in the room back there, just FYI tech team, thank you. Um, the law, the, the, this refers to the Mosaic law, right? This was when Moses walks down from the mountain, forever captured in, in film on the, on the movie, The Ten Commandments. Um, this, the, the Ten Commandments are given, and then there's the 600 plus laws that are given to the nation of Israel about how God wants to be worshipped, how they should live, the foods they should eat or should not eat, and how the nation should run. And these laws speak to all of these different areas of their life. And God was saying, this is my covenant. I'm giving you this law. I want you to follow me in these ways. And if you do that, I will bless you. And if you don't do that, there are, there, there's, there's curses. There's like bad things will happen if you don't follow these laws. Well, after the Messiah comes, after Jesus is into this world and lives his life with us and fulfills the law perfectly, there's this question that the early church had to wrestle with, which is what do you do with the law? And there were conflicts that took place in these early churches. Is, is Christianity going to be this new subgroup of Judaism 
that continues to follow the law, but they believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Or is it something entirely different? You know, there, there, were Jewish, there, there was this transition that took place in the early church between it being something that was most, mostly Jewish to now there's this pivot point that happens during Paul's ministry where now many of the people coming to Christ have no Jewish background at all. They don't understand the Old Testament. They don't understand the stories of the people of God through the Old Testament. And this started early, right? On the, on the day of Pentecost, there were Jewish men in the nation uh, or in the city of Jerusalem. And they hear the message of Jesus in their own language, right? The, the disciples are, are given, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. And one of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit is they are speaking in all of these different languages of these people, these Jewish people that are scattered all over the ancient world that have come together for this festival of Pentecost. They hear the message of Jesus in their own native tongue. And then they return. Some of these people return to where they're from. Some of them undoubtedly ended up in Rome eventually. And there was a church established in Rome long before the Apostle Paul ever made it to Rome. And he's writing this letter now to these Christians that are there in Rome. Again, it started out as this kind of Jewish subgroup of people that believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But more and more, these non-Jewish, these Gentile people were coming to Christ and in Rome, at one point, this is referred to in the book of Acts, the, the Jewish people are expelled from Rome by Emperor Claudius. He kicked them all out. He said, you all have to leave. And they, they left for a while, including the Christian Jews. And it was something like between maybe 5 to 10, 10 to 11 years. And during that time, the church was entirely Gentile. And now the Jewish Christians are coming back, and there's this conflict. And this is one of the things that Paul addresses in a number of the different churches that he writes to. What? How do you follow Jesus? Um, do you need to convert to Judaism in, in order to convert to Christianity? And when people come to Christ from this non-Jewish background, like what, what are they supposed to do? Do they need to be Jewish to follow Christ? Do they need to keep the law? Right, And we, we are familiar with this idea of the law. If you've ever tried to do one of the Bible reading plans and you got really stuck in Leviticus, right? You're like, the sacrifices must be prepared in this way, and there's the wave offering and the thanksgiving offerings and all these different things. This is the law. Think about how a Roman slave who, who came to Christ in this church in Rome, he, comes to the, he meets a Christian, he gets invited to a gathering, he gives his life to Jesus. And think about how they must have thought about, you know, a Roman slave who grew up worshiping the emperor, worshiping the Caesar, Right? And then maybe Apollo, like had his favorite Roman god that he would go to the temple and, and worship. And he hears this stuff about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist saying something like that. Or that Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. Or that Jesus is our long-awaited Messiah. And I can imagine them responding like, oh, that, that sounds all really important, but I have no idea what you're talking about. I have no context for any of those things. The, the, the early church is becoming uh, more and more made up of Gentiles as far as pure numbers of people that are coming to Christ and less and less Jewish um, in, in the sense that more and more Gentiles are coming to faith in, in, more, in more numbers than the Jewish Christians. So this is the, the wrestling that's taking place between the law and, 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 and not following the law, right? In, in, in the book of Acts, we see the early church wrestling with that. You can read through the book of Acts and see how they dealt with some of these challenges. 
Now we're going to get into the weeds here in Romans chapter 7. And, and we're, Paul's going to be talking about some very complicated ideas. He's going to use the word law a lot. And we're right, kind of, we're heading towards the middle of our study in the book of Romans. We've covered a lot of ground. And to help us get our minds wrapped around the building of ideas that the Apostle Paul is doing. He's building these block upon block, brick upon brick, up further and further. We want to understand this message of the gospel and Paul's arguments that he's making through the book of Romans. And to help us refresh our memories or introduce us to this, if you're new to our church, we're going to take a look at a a, a video clip. It's about, I think, four and a half minutes long by a group called The Bible Project. These videos are on YouTube, they're freely available, and these are very helpful, especially for books like the Book of Romans that have a lot of ideas, a lot of concepts in them. And I wanna take a look at, at the video that's gonna capture, let, recap a little bit of chapters one through four of Romans and give us some context and some insight for chapters five through eight, which is the section that we're in right now. So let's take a look on the screen behind me. Paul's letter to the Romans. Check out the first video where we explored who Paul was, why he wrote this letter, and where we trace the core ideas of chapters 1 through 4. That all humanity is hopelessly trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. That this rescue is not going to happen by people trying to obey the laws of the Torah. Rather, God's righteous character has moved him to rescue the world through Jesus' death and resurrection so that he could create a faith-based multi-ethnic family of Abraham as his people. Now, in the remaining three movements of the letter to the Romans, Paul is going to develop these ideas even more. So, remember, Paul's exploration of justification by faith, that when people trust Jesus' death and resurrection was for them, they're given a new status, they're right with God, they're placed in a new family, the covenant people of Abraham, and they're given a new future, the hope of a transformed life. Now Paul wants to show how this reality should reshape every part of our existence because being in this family means being a part of a new humanity that God is creating through Jesus and the Spirit. So Paul goes back to the first human character of the biblical story, Adam. His name means humanity. And Adam, like all humanity after him, has chosen sin and selfishness. And so everyone faces God's judgment because we've become slaves to sin's influence resulting in death. But then Paul contrasts Adam with Jesus, who he says is the new Adam, a human who lived in faithful obedience to God, shown through his act of sacrificial love. And now Jesus offers his life as a gift to others so that they can be justified before God. And so Jesus stands as the head of a new humanity that is being transformed by this gift, which leads him to chapter 6. Paul reminds these Christians in Rome that choosing to follow Jesus means leaving their old Adam-like humanity and entering into the new Jesus-like humanity. And their baptism was a sacred symbol of that transition. Their old humanity died with Jesus and their new humanity was raised with him from the dead. So when a person trusts in Jesus, their life becomes joined to his life. What's true of him is now true of them. It's when people accept their identity as Jesus-like humans that they are liberated to become the wholehearted humans who can truly love God and their neighbor. Now, if creating this new humanity was always God's purpose, Paul asks in chapter 7, what then was the point of God giving Israel the law, or in Hebrew, the Torah? 
Now, side note, when Paul uses this word law, he sometimes means the storyline and message of the first five books of the Bible, but other times he's more specifically referring to the hundreds of commands given through Moses and that are found in the Torah. The second meaning is Paul's focus here. What was the purpose of all those commands? Paul says that the commands of the Torah were good. They showed God's will for how Israel was to live. But if you read the storyline of the Torah, Israel broke all those commands. The more laws Israel received, the more they replayed the sin of Adam and rebelled. So even when God gave his people specific moral rules to obey, that did not fix the problem of the sinful human heart. And so paradoxically, these rules made Israel even more guilty. But, Paul says, that paradox is the point. God's goal was to make it crystal clear that it's evil that's hijacked the human heart and that the Torah, good as it is, could not do a thing about it. But, Paul says in chapter 8, the solution has arrived in Jesus and the Spirit. And here's how. The commands of the Torah acted like a magnifying glass. It focused the problem of the human condition into one place, the people of Israel. But now Israel's representative, Jesus the Messiah, has paid for and dealt with all of that sin through his death and his resurrection. And now Jesus has released his spirit into his new family to transform their hearts so that they can truly fulfill the call of all the Torah's commands to love God and neighbor. And there's more. God's renewal of human beings is the first step of his larger mission to rescue and renew all of creation, making it a place where his love gets the final word. If you want more, just look up Roman's Bible Project on YouTube and you can watch the first video that he referenced there and then watch the rest of that video if you just didn't want to stop where we stopped. Um, we're going to read Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 13 with that little bit of big picture of where we've been in Romans, where we're going, and the, the coming weeks. And we'll read here Romans 7, 1 through 13. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for it would, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful 
beyond measure. Now, this is tough. This passage is one of the most challenging ones that I've had to teach on, and I keep thinking that about past weeks, and then I get to this one, and I go, boy, I'm standing up in front of you. I'm ready to teach on this passage, and I I have to admit that I have not fully grasped all the concepts that Paul is using here. But I want to say this about the message of the gospel and about Paul's level of thinking about this, that the gospel message, what Jesus came to do, who Jesus is, what Jesus is doing now, and what he has done already is deep. And it goes as deep as you want to go with it, and even deeper than that. If you want to stay on the surface and enjoy the things that God's done at kind of a very shallow level, you can do that, but you can also go as deep as you want to go, and you will not find the bottom of the depths of the gospel message. I was in, we were in Mexico on our Youth Mexico missions trip um, a few months back, I think it was April. Um, and while we were there, I got to sit in on a Bible study that, that Kylan, one of our teaching team members and just awesome part of our church family, was leading with a group of the English-speaking uh, part of the congregation. So we were talking in this Bible study about what it means to abide in Christ. And, and Paul, uh, uh, or Kylan was getting into the depths. He was getting into like some deep concepts as he does, if you know Kylan. <laughs> Right, Kylan's a deep thinker. Like he's he, and and can get into the weeds on stuff and can just navigate through these tough complexes, complex ideas. And there was a quote that was so amazing from one of the women in this Bible study. It was so good that I had to write it down. And here it is. She goes, "I don't think that deeply, but I'm glad someone does." <laughs> I I loved that was one of my favorite moments on the trip. And and I I. Think about that with the Apostle Paul and these ideas that he's bringing out in the book of Romans. It's like, I don't think that deeply, Paul, but I'm glad someone does, right? There's some tough concepts here for us to wrestle through. And what we're going to do over the rest of our time together this morning is we're going to try to trace Paul's argument, try to understand at least the broad outline of his argument, and then see how we can apply this to our lives. So I think one of the things Paul's doing in this passage we just read is he's addressing this idea of sin. What do we do about our sin? Is the law sin? What effect does the law have on our sin nature? And I think one of the things he's addressing is that we've talked about justification by grace through faith. This is at the heart of the book of Romans. We can be made right before God, in God's sight, by grace. It is a gift of God, and we receive that by faith, putting our, expressing our trust in him and receiving that gift. That is the gospel message. And the law, the law reveals our need for that. The law shows how, fall, how far short we fall of that. But what, so salvation is not through the law. Jesus, who kept the law perfectly, he provides the salvation for us. But what about spiritual growth? Do we grow spiritually after our relationship with Christ begins? Is that through the law? Because this is kind of at the heart of the argument that Paul had with so many of the people that he was debating with about this issue, about what do non-Jewish Christians do when they come to faith? Do they have to obey the law now? And Paul said a whole bunch of things that seem negative about the law. If you do a word search on like BibleGateway.com or some other website to, to look at the number of times the word law shows up in the book of Romans, it's all over the book of Romans. And it seems like Paul's saying something negative about it, and he's not. He's just saying that salvation is not, does not come through the law, that everyone, regardless of whether or not they have the law, need to be saved in the same way. Salvation is by grace through faith. 
So he doesn't think the law is bad, but he does think several things about the law that we're going to unpack here together. And the first one is this. The law reveals our sin. We saw that in the video, this magnifying glass that shows the human heart and shows how broken the the humanity is. The law shows us what sin is. Paul said it this way in Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law functions like a mirror. The law shows us what we look like. God's standards are laid out and God's teachings and his truth and who God is kind of laid out there in the law. And we get to see our reflection there and see whether or not we measure up. But the law goes beyond that when it comes to the way our sin interacts with it. And it's the law reacts with our sin. And Paul says it in several different places. I'm going to recap these briefly in, in verse 5, he says, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Verse 8, he says, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. In verse 11, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So this idea here is that the law, there's something about God's law, God's requirements for how we should live our life and our sin nature, that when they come together, there's a, there's a reaction. And this is the idea that we open the service with, you know, the idea don't touch, you know. Or you, you walk by a door that you would have ignored. You would not have seen the door, but if you're walking through some place and the door says, do not enter, all of a sudden you're kind of curious about what's on the other side of that door, right? Or like, private or something like that, you wouldn't even have seen the door unless the sign was there. The, the wet paint sign, it's like, is it wet? I think I want to touch it and find out if, if that's really wet. There's the, the rules, for some reason, are our sin nature, the part of us, the flesh, you know, that Paul will talk about, there's this that interacts with these rules, and, and there's, a, there's a reaction, and I'm using that word on purpose, like vinegar and baking soda, that when you combine them, there's this reaction that takes place, right? Or Mentos and Diet Coke. In fact, I have some Mentos and... No, I don't have Mentos and Diet Coke. Let's do it right now on the new carpet, yeah. Um, there was a hotel in Galveston, Texas, uh, and it was on the shore of the Gulf of Mexico, and they put a sign up in each room because of where it was. It was overlooking the water, right on the water at the, in the Gulf of Mexico, and they put up a sign in each hotel room that said, no fishing from the balcony. And the reason why they did that is there was this big dining room down below it with these huge windows overlooking the Gulf of Mexico, and people would throw the, you know, the, the fishing line over with the weight, and they could break the window or scratch the window. And so they said, we don't want people doing that. No fishing from the balcony. But every day, Every day, you know what was happening. People were, I didn't even think of fishing from the balcony, but that's a great idea. I'm going to do that, you know. Then the management decided to take down the signs, and the fishing stopped. People didn't even think of it at that point because it wasn't suggested to them. This is this idea, right, that the law, like, draws things out of our sinful nature, not because the law is bad, but because sin goes so deep that this is how we react to prohibitions sometimes. Third 
principle, that just to recap, the law reveals our sin, the law reacts with our sin, and then this third idea I want us to wrestle with this morning is that the law is good, but it has limitations for life change. The law is good, but it has limitations when it comes to our life change. Paul's talking about here this idea that we've died, and he uses this illustration about marriage. He's not teaching about marriage. He's using it as an illustration about how we've died and we're no longer married to the law, but we're married to, we're we're the bride of Christ is another illustration where marriage is used to, to talk about our relationship with God. But when we think about this idea of living up to the code and that being how we change our lives, our ability to check the box, is Is behavior change the key to life change for Christians? On this side of the cross, as as followers of Christ, is it possible to grow in your goodness and righteousness by keeping the law through your own efforts? And that last part is the key. The law is good, Paul says, but there's something about the law interacting with our, our, our human hearts that creates this reaction. And we can look at obeying God's law or checking the boxes for behavior change and and substitute that for real life change. I want to recap, I think, what's the heart of the passage. Romans 7, verses 4 through 6. Not just recap. I'm going to reread that, that portion. It says this, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bring fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. This is so important for us to understand these concepts here. Paul's talking about fruit in this passage and bearing fruit. He's saying if your life is going to produce good things for God, including life change, if you will bear fruit, that is going to be because of this new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. And he draws battle lines that we will dive deep into next week, which is the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Next week and really for the next few weeks, we're going to kind of dive into this idea. But I want to I try to make a nuanced point here. And so I want you to hear what I'm going to say and not hear what I'm not saying. And I'm going to use an illustration from a pastor named John Orberg. And it's from an article that he wrote. And he talked about boundary markers and the way that we look to these boundary markers as substitutes for actual life change. Behavior change versus true transformation empowered by the Holy Spirit. He says this, the church I grew up in had its boundary markers. A prideful or resentful pastor could have kept his job, but if ever the pastor was caught smoking a cigarette, he would have been fired. Not because anyone in the church actually thought smoking was a worse sin than pride or resentment, but because smoking defined who was in our subculture and who wasn't. It was a boundary marker. As I was growing up, having a quiet time became a boundary marker a measure of spiritual growth. If someone had asked me about my spiritual life, I would immediately think, have I been having regular and lengthy quiet time? My initial thought was not, am I growing more loving towards God and towards people? Boundary markers change from culture to culture, but the dynamic remains the same. 
If people do not experience authentic transformation, then their faith will deteriorate into a search for the boundary markers that masquerade as evidence of a changed life. Saying there's a very non-spiritual way of looking at life change. It is that did you check the box? Did you do the things? Are you following the law, so to speak? And this is not the way we, we, we change our lives, although the results might look very similar. Someone who is trying to like, please God by obeying the law and by checking the boxes, their life might look very similar to someone who is, is living in this new way, bearing fruit by the Spirit. It might look almost identical. Like both people are going to try to obey God's commands. They're going to try to live the right way. They're going to try to obey the Ten Commandments, not tell lies, and you know, I'll do, do these things. Their life might look very similar, but the fuel source is entirely different from one to the other. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a quiet time or shouldn't spend time in your devotional life. I'm definitely, again, hear me for what I'm saying and what I'm not saying here. I'm not saying you shouldn't have quiet time, but I think there's a difference between looking at your life as if you fulfilled the law, you did the basic requirements, and and so because you did that in your own efforts, you are somehow right before God or you're living the way that God wants you to live or that you're truly changing in your life. That that's not, just checking the box is not how we do it. It is, it is letting the Holy Spirit bear fruit within our lives, being fueled by the Spirit. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter, another letter to the church at Galatia, and they were wrestling with the same ideas. Like, what role does the law play when it comes to our relationship with God? Do, do we have to obey the Mosaic law in, in kind of out of this, out of this human effort? What, is, what does this look like? And Paul, in his letter, I think it's chapter 2, he says, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Saying salvation came to you through a work of God and through, you know, by grace through faith. Are you now going to take all of your own efforts to perfect you the rest of the way? Or are you going to allow the Holy Spirit to work through you and see your life as being connected to his divine life? in Jesus living his life out through you. That's how to bear fruit. And Paul will talk about this battle between the flesh and the spirit in the rest of chapter 7, also in chapter 8. This is also key to the idea of the book of Romans. Galatians 5, 16 to 24, Paul is trying to drive this idea home to them as well, this battle between the flesh and the spirit and how we live out our new reality as followers of Christ. It's not just about obeying the law or checking the boxes, but it's about connecting with that divine life that God offers us. And our quiet times help us with that, by the way. I think that's one of the ways that we, we, we spend time with God in prayer and, and spending time in his word, and that's the source of life for us. But we're not bringing all that to the table. We're trying to plug in. We're trying to connect to him who actually transforms us, actually changes us. Galatians 5, 16 to 24 says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This is the same idea. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, 
fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul says if we're living out according to the flesh, there's these works, these things that we do. But if we're living according to the Spirit, there is fruit. It's just God growing things in us. And we're living our lives out of this deep sense of connection with him. I want to help us hopefully bring this idea home by using an illustration that I'm borrowing from Pastor Ray Stedman, who's in heaven now. Um, but he says that he's trying to get this idea across about Romans uh, 6, 7, and 8, what they're talking about. And I'm going to, um, I have a glove here. And I know you don't want to see, this is not the season for these gloves here, but this is a winter glove. And it's laying here on this stool. And there's a water bottle. And obeying Christ's commands without, just out of our own effort and not through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is like me telling this glove to grab that water bottle. Glove, I want you to grab that water bottle. I, I think you can see it is not grabbing the water bottle. Maybe it doesn't want to enough. Glove, you got to want it. Like you're not going to grab it like that just laying there. You're not putting any effort into this. Right, get, get, into, get into this, right? You can do it. I mean, it just needs more motivation, I think. Just need to hype it up a little bit. You can grab the water bottle. I believe in you. No, no, no. Maybe, maybe it's that it hasn't been instructed enough. There's information it doesn't have. So let me give it the proper information. So here, if Glove, if I was you, what I would do is I would try to lift my hand up first. I'd get my thumb down a little bit and then scoot towards the water bottle, and then you could pick it up. Still not doing it. Doesn't have the, the information that it needs, or it has the information that it needs, so there must be some other thing going on with it. Glove, why are you not picking up the water bottle? You can do it. You have the fingers and the thumb. I see it. It seems like you should be able to pick up the water bottle. Now, we, we know the solution to this, right? It needs life inside of it, which is my hand going inside the glove and giving it the ability to pick up the water bottle. So now it's become the O.J. Simpson trial here. If it doesn't fit, it must have quit. Um, it fit great, right? The glove always fits with, with Jesus, by the way, right? If we allow Christ to live his life through us, then we can do the kinds of things that God is asking us to do, empowered by his Holy Spirit. Boom, water bottle picked up, Right? Christ asks us to do things. He asks us to live in a certain way, to live our lives by, by, his, by his law. The, our relationship with the law changes. We don't, we don't follow the law because we're trying to please God or we're trying to check the box. We follow God's commands. We do that. That matters to us. But we do it empowered by his Holy Spirit and by viewing our lives as connected to him and empowered through his spirit. The founder of the Salvation Army was a man named William Booth, and his wife said this about this idea. What the law tried to do by a restraining power from without, the gospel does by an inspiring power from within. That's what God is calling us to. That's what God offers us. Let's pray and ask God to help us with that. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these deep truths of the gospel. And Lord, sometimes these are hard to wrap our minds around, and I pray that you would help us with these concepts. Lord, I pray that the things that I tried to communicate today would be effective. Lord, and what you want people to take away and what people need to receive this morning would be what they receive. And Lord, I pray that you would give us some clarity on some of these deep, deep truths. I believe what we've been talking about today has the ability to transform so much of how we approach our everyday life. You're calling us to live empowered by your spirit and bearing fruit for you, not just through our own efforts, but through the transforming power of your grace, and your grace changes everything. And we still put effort, we still put energy into doing things for you, but we do it from a totally different fuel source. We do it empowered by you, and and Lord, living in this love relationship we have with you. So, Lord, help us with this. And, Lord, I pray for anybody in this room who hasn't received you yet. I pray that today would be the day that they put their faith in you, that they'd receive this gift that was purchased for them at the ultimate price of your son's life at Calvary. Lord, and it's on offer to anybody. Lord, we can be made right before you by a gift, by your grace and through faith, simply putting our trust in what you've already offered. So, Lord, if there's anyone here, right under the sound of my voice, that hasn't received that yet, Lord, stir them to say yes to you right in this moment. Bring them into your family. And, Lord, may that just change everything for them. May they have your, a sense of your love and your spirit and this idea of being a new creation. Old, old things have passed away. We've become brand new. We are born again into your family. And Lord, may all of us who have been following you for maybe years now, Lord, to never forget the beauty of that and our, our, our just passion to help other people know you and then to live out a fullness of our relationship with you. Let us not settle for a low level of, of checking boxes or whatever, but to live this dynamic relationship with you through your Holy Spirit, to bear fruit for you to produce real change in this life and in our world, the people that we interact with, Lord, because of your spirit at work within us. Lord, we find ourselves in a battle between the flesh and the spirit, and we need your help with that. Help us to walk in step with your Holy Spirit and to bear fruit for you. We love you. We're so thankful for your truths, Lord, the depths of the gospel message, what you have done for us. Well, it'll take us into eternity, Lord, to get to the bottom of this, and maybe not even then. But Lord, may we celebrate, may we proclaim, may we live out a life of gratitude for all that you have done for us. And may we give you just some of the praise you are due as we worship together now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.